Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a four-week teaching series during Advent called Waiting for the World to Change. Together, we're learning how we can wait differently because God is renewing all things. Thanks for listening. December 25th, 2005, 5.45 p.m. That's the day and the time that everything changed. We had gone to the hospital a few hours after attending the Christmas Eve services at Cherry Hills back on Outer Park Drive, and our emotions ranged from excited to scared and everything in between, but we were ready for this. Sarah and I had taken all the classes, we had read the best pre-parenting books, and we had prayed every day for this new life. We were ready. I had this parenting thing nailed, and I hadn't even started yet. Needless to say, I was wearing some thick rose-colored glasses. Our first son was born on Christmas Day, and the entire event of becoming a parent seemed idyllic, right? I mean, Ben entered the world without crying. He was observant of everything that was going on around him. He was so quiet that I kept asking the doctors and nurses, is he okay? Is he okay? Is he okay? And they were all like, hey, new dad, he's fine. We know what we're doing. He's fine. So he let the nurses poke and measure him. He seemed to even enjoy his first warm bath. Given by a dad who didn't have a clue what he was doing. After our families left that night, we read the Christmas story to our newborn son. We sang our favorite Christmas carols to him and we prayed over him before leaving for the night. And in my mind, this is what I thought, this utopia is how it's always going to be. Perfect child, no crying, no arguing, no complaining, completely dependent on us, and I'll always make the right decision. Little did I know that his acquiescence during that time was a result of the most traumatic event in his life, being born. It took three days for that myth to be shattered. And it's because I arrived home and realized that Ben didn't come with a nurse button. I couldn't call anybody to help me. He would not always be as peaceful as he was during that trauma-induced honeymoon period in the hospital. And he would not always look at me with curious eyes, unable to do anything but lie in my arms and think, I'm perfect. In a laughable moment, when we discovered that Sarah was pregnant with our second son, I thought, surely I know what I'm doing. But as the old song goes, help me out here, second verse, same as the first. Oh my goodness, was I wrong. Every child is different, and I didn't realize that till I had a second child. And it became even more clear that I didn't know what I was doing. And that was never more true than when I stood on the steps of an orphanage in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, and met my son for the first time. Again, three boys, overwhelmed, imperfect dad, don't know what I'm doing, mess up continually. And through the years, my boys would see an imperfect dad trying the best he could, but they realized that as a follower of Jesus... I did not always act or look like the one whose name I claimed. A decade into this parenting thing, there is a phrase that has haunted me and taunted me. This 
is not how I thought things would be. Now, that's about parenting. I could easily tell you stories from my marriage, my work, coaching kids' sports teams. Oh my goodness, is that not the way things are supposed to be? In all those environments, I've had this is not how I thought things would be situations. And if I gave you all just a couple minutes, I believe you could come up with your own this is not how I thought things would be scenarios. And it's in these moments, not how things are supposed to be, that we find ourselves waiting for things to change. Some people here this morning, you are waiting for a job. You are waiting for the email or the phone to ring with the job offer. Or you find yourself waiting for the right person to come into your life that you can spend the rest of your life with as a husband or wife. Some of you, you're waiting for release from a habitual sin or an addiction. You never thought you would get in this far, and you don't know how to get out. This is not how you thought things would be, and you find yourself waiting. Someone is here, and you're waiting for your spouse to come home, and it's heart-wrenching. Or you're waiting for a child to come home that has walked away and it's taking so much longer than you hoped. Some of you are waiting for a baby. Some kids are waiting for their parents to get things worked out, to get their lives together. And some of you are waiting for a diagnosis or lab results that will influence your future. If you're following in your notes, we all have, this is not how I thought things would be scenarios. I believe today can be a day where we learn to wait differently. If we all have those, this is not how things should be scenarios, then how do we wait in the middle of them? And I think we can learn to wait differently beginning today. Today begins a season of the Christian year called Advent. You heard about that earlier. John and his family lit the candle. If you're following in your notes, Advent is a Latin term that means coming or arrival. It means coming or arrival. And it's this season of longing and waiting and expectation and hope. During Advent, we look forward to celebrating Jesus on our calendar, December 25th. We look forward to celebrating his first Advent as a baby, and we look toward his second Advent when he comes back to make all things new, to put everything back the way it was originally created to be. And the season of Advent takes place the four Sundays before Christmas, and I found that by practicing Advent, it takes my eyes off the consumerism of the season. Everything that I need to buy and everything that I need to wrap, things need to get done. They need to get done. But how can I keep my focus on celebrating Jesus' first Advent while looking toward his second Advent? And so my family, 
One of our traditions is that we do an Advent reading every night. We have an Advent uh, candle set, and we light a candle, and we do a reading. It doesn't take long, but it's a way to keep our focus. I've included on the back of your notes some of my favorite resources that I've read through for Advent, whether it's an individual or a family. My family is going to do the Jesus Storybook Bible Advent resource this year. Uh, just quick survey, how many of you went shopping uh, on Black Friday or Saturday? Yeah, you really need to practice Advent. <laughs> I'm just joking. We all, we all need to practice Advent. We all need to practice Advent because it's so easy to put our eyes on other things during this busy season. And I believe this season of Advent can help us all wait differently. And this this week, we begin a four-week series called Waiting for the World to Change, and we're learning together, if you're following in your notes, we can wait differently because we know God is restoring all things. We can wait differently. And as I thought about this and prayed about this during the week, the Lord brought this to my mind. There's one requirement for waiting differently— if you're following in your notes, we must believe Jesus' second advent is better. We've got to believe it's better than right now. I've lived like this. I like the here and now. I love my family. I love my job. The unknown is a little scary. I don't know what's out there. I don't know what it's going to be like to be with Jesus forever. I get it. I lived like that for a number of years. I like the here and now, and sometimes I think it might be better than the unknown. But man, I've been through loss in my life, whether it's Sarah having two miscarriages or our daughters being stillborn seven years ago yesterday. When I look around and I see 153 million orphans in the world without a mom and dad that can take care of them, or over 40 million people in slavery more than have ever existed in the history of the world, this can't be as good as it gets. It's got to be better. C.S. Lewis has a powerful quote that helps us understand how Jesus' second advent will be better than right now. He says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum, because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We are attracted and pleased and lured by the things of this world. And friends, we must believe that Jesus' second advent promises something better. We have to. And if it is better, then we can wait differently. We can wait with hope. And that's what I want to talk about today is the word hope. And I want to define that as we get started, because there's a lot of confusion about what hope is. Let's begin what, by talking about what it's not. Here's what hope is not. It's not a mere desire for something to happen. I hope my team wins the Super Bowl. I hope I get a raise. 
Hope isn't wishing for the best. It isn't waiting to see what happens and hope that it turns out well. Hope is not a feeling. It's not an emotion. Biblical hope is not I hope so. It's I know so. And so if you're following in your notes, hope is confident expectation. It's confident expectation. It's a deep-rooted faith, not based on circumstances that we find ourselves in, but based on the promises and the character of God. In Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, in chapter 11, verse 1, writes these words. Would you read this with me? Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. As followers of Jesus, we're people of hope. We have confident expectation as we live between the two advents that God is working everything out for good and he's in the business of restoring all things. So this season, how do we live in this is not the way I thought things would be? How do we wait with confident expectation that God is working and he will one day come again and set everything right? How do we do that? To help us this morning, I want to look at a familiar passage in the Bible, especially at Christmas time, and see what we can learn from the prophet Isaiah, who lived 700 years before Jesus, his first coming, and then I want to pull out several important applications that are the basis for our hope today. So I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. I tell the kids, uh, when I used to work downstairs, I would tell the kids this all the time. The table of contents in your Bible is your best friend. Never be ashamed to open your Bible to a table of contents and see where Isaiah is because it's a little tough to find. So you can find Isaiah. If you don't have a Bible with you today, we have black Bibles in the seat rack in front of you. Isaiah chapter 9 can be found on page 559 of those Bibles. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, take that Bible home with you. The Psalms actually tell us that in your Word I put my hope, my confident expectation. So we want everybody to have a copy of God's Word. Isaiah 9. Isaiah was a prophet. And he writes in the genre of prophecy, which frequently speaks to the now and the not yet. It speaks to present conditions, but it points people to a future fulfillment. And sometimes there's multiple fulfillments, but it deals with the now and the not yet. So Isaiah is writing prophecy and he's writing to a people who had a deep belief that God would one day send a Messiah, a rescuer, a savior, first mentioned in Genesis 3. But while they waited, I imagine God's people, God's chosen people were continually saying to themselves, this is not the way I thought things would be. They were his chosen people. They had been promised rescue and abundance and prosperity, and they find themselves walking in darkness, waiting to be invaded by a warring army. 
In Isaiah chapter 8, verses 21 to 22, I'm going to put this on the screen, we're provided with a cultural commentary into which Isaiah is writing. Isaiah writes these words, chapter 8, distressed and hungry, these are the people of God, distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged and looking upward will curse their king and their God. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom and they will be thrust into utter darkness. These people that Isaiah is writing to are crushed under all sorts of psychological and social problems. They are looking everywhere for answers. If you read back further in chapter 8, they're looking to mediums and spiritualists. They look to each other for answers because they're so smart. And the more they look to the earth, the more they see darkness. And if we're honest, I'm not sure we're all that different than those people who lived 3,000 years ago. Secularism and humanism are exploding in our culture, and people are looking everywhere for answers. They look to the sky and they blame God, and they curse God, and they look for answers among one another, and they analyze everything. And the more they look to themselves, the darker their lives get. Like the time of Isaiah, if you're following in your notes, we live in a culture of fear with a lack of hope. All you've got to do is look around or turn on the news to know that's true. And it's into this darkness that Isaiah writes some familiar words in chapter 9. I'm going to read verse 1 and then I'm going to invite you to read the first gray box on your notes with me. Chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, he starts with the words, nevertheless, which contrasts what's going on in chapter 8. So here comes a contrast. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. And then would you read with me? The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Did you catch the prophecy that was fulfilled in Jesus in verse 1? I mean, there's over 330 prophecies in the Old Testament that are fulfilled in Jesus. This is just one. Galilee of the nations would be honored. A no-name, unremarkable town, middle of nowhere. It's where Jesus would grow up. Continuing to explain the importance of Jesus, in verse 2, we read that Isaiah's prophecy is that a light shines into the darkness. And here's what I want us to notice about this. The people discovered a great light. They didn't generate it. They didn't ignite it. They didn't kindle it. They discovered it. They saw it. And what this means is the world tries to understand its own problems and it analyzes them incessantly and we cannot find a solution to them. That's why this world is in a dark place. And the message of Isaiah chapter 9 verse 2 If you want to write this next to your Bibles, in your Bibles, Isaiah 9, the message of Isaiah 9, verse 2, is that unless God has sent his son into the world, there is no hope. That's the message of Isaiah 9, too. If you're following in your notes, without Jesus, there is no light and no hope for the world. 
Isaiah continues in verse 3, if you're following along in your Bibles. He writes, You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. So let, let's stop and talk about that for just a minute, because that seems a little out of place, but it's not. It makes perfect sense when we know what he's talking about. Isaiah describes the day the light dawns by saying the nation is enlarged. God's family is enlarged. Jesus came to save everyone, and the people rejoice as on a day when a great war has ended. And in verse 4, what he's talking about, this might seem a, a little bit off topic, but it's not at all. The joy is likened to the day of Midian's defeat. This is a story. You may just want to write this in, or it might be cross-referenced in your Bible. This is a reference to a great story, a famous story found in the book of Judges, chapter 7. There's this small guy named Gideon that defeated the overwhelmingly oppressive Midianites with an army of 300 guys. As a result, verse 4, the oppressive yoke and the rod of their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor was shattered. Verse 5, all trampling boots and bloodied garments were destined for the fire. Isaiah is pointing people back to a time when God rescued his people. Isaiah is telling the people to remember how God provided for them in the day of Gideon. He's reminding them that he will rescue them again, but in a greater way. If you're following in your notes, God's faithfulness in the past gave them hope for the future. His faithfulness in the past gave them hope for the future. He's saying, remember, I've promised you I'm going to rescue you. Remember how I did that in the past. Have hope for the future. Confident expectation. So in verses 1 to 5, Isaiah has told us that one day in the future, God will send a conqueror to free his people from oppression and begin the restoration process of making all things new. And then this surprising conqueror who works the stunning victory in verses 1 to 5 is revealed beginning in verse 6. Would you read the second gray box on your notes with me? These are some familiar words at Christmas. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, the Messiah, the rescuer that everybody was waiting for, would be a child born, a son given. Rather than a conquering king that everyone wanted, God arrived and began this rescue mission as a helpless, innocent baby. And this baby is described 
with four couplets. And what I want us to get is these are, these are aspects of his character. Sometimes I think in the past I've thought, oh, these are the names of Jesus. These are not his names. His name is Emmanuel. God, uh, Isaiah chapter 7 says you will name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's a prophecy that God is coming in the form of Jesus. And Mary and Joseph named him Jesus, which means he saves so those are his names. These are aspects of his character. And this baby is described with four phrases. So let's walk through these briefly. Wonderful counselor. That's two words in Hebrew. The first word wonderful, if you're following in your notes, means beyond understanding. It's a word you use to talk about something when it's too wonderful for words. You don't even have words. Isaiah was saying that when this Messiah comes, it will be beyond our words to describe him. And that is so true. All of our words are not sufficient. We can write new songs and sing new songs, but our, we still are at a lack of words for how wonderful he is. He's better than anything we can imagine. And the second word counselor means one who instructs from a position of authority. He leads us in the right way. And the picture I want to give you here is someone to whom you bring your worst problems and he shows you the way out. He is the wonderful counselor. And do you know why I love that characteristic of Jesus? Because it means he came for people with problems and he doesn't turn us away. He is the wonderful counselor. He's also the mighty God. It, this is an interesting characteristic that Isaiah uses on purpose to reveal that this Savior, if you're following in your notes, will be fully human and fully God. The word translated mighty was a common word for powerful warriors who would win battles with their own strength. But the word translated God is absolutely divine. And that putting these two phrases together clinches the doctrine of incarnation. Jesus was born a human baby who was also fully God. And friends, this one is so important because this distinguishes Christianity from every other religion. All other religions are about how we can be good enough to get to God. Our faith is about how God came down to save us. It sets Christianity completely apart that we have a God who is fully human and fully God, mighty God. The third aspect of his character is everlasting father. Some of you have had great dads and your memories are fond and they're cherished. But for some of you, you didn't have a great relationship with your dad. Perhaps it's some of the greatest pain in your life. So hearing the words that Jesus is an everlasting father isn't real uplifting. And even if you did have a good dad, he's going to disappoint you at some time in your life and he is going to fail you. And even the best dads die. They won't be here forever. And we're told here that a characteristic of Jesus is that he is the everlasting father. If you're following in your notes, he never disappoints, never forsakes, never leaves, never dies. 
I read a quote this week by one author that said this about Jesus being an everlasting father. I thought it was beautiful. He said, Jesus is the father your heart has always craved for. Even if you've had the best dad, he's the father your heart has always craved for. He's the everlasting father. And he's the prince of peace. He's the prince of peace. And there's two meanings to this. If you're following on your notes, first, peace with God. It means peace with God. First and foremost, the prince of peace, Jesus, makes peace between God and us. And we have to remember that the root of all of our problems is our separation from God caused by our sinful choices. Thus, our ultimate salvation could never come from a warrior who would ride in on a horse and defeat our problems, but from a baby who would be born like us, grow up to live the life we were supposed to live, and die the death that we were condemned to die, and release us from the curse of sin and break the power of sin in our lives. That's the only way we can be saved and be at peace with God. Romans 5.1, the Apostle Paul puts it this way. Would you read this with me? Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The Prince of Peace provides us peace with God. This is why Jesus was born. This is why he was born to provide peace with God. But he also, if you're following in your notes, provides us with the peace of God. The peace of God. And this peace is only promised to those who follow Jesus. You have to have peace with God before you can experience the peace of God. And what this means in this crazy messed up world you can experience peace and wholeness. The word for peace is shalom, wholeness, rightness, setting the world right again. You can experience wholeness. Doesn't mean we're going to have perfection in this life, but he does promise that he'll always be with us and we can have peace in difficult times. Jesus is the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and the prince of peace. And then Isaiah finishes in verse 7 by writing this words. You can follow in your Bibles. He writes, Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And so Isaiah goes back and he combines more promises and more characteristics. That one day, this kingdom, he points us to the second advent, one day, this kingdom will be a perfect reflection of Jesus' character. A perfectly righteous king who loves righteousness and hates wickedness will make sure that those attributes characterize his kingdom forever. One day, at the second advent of Jesus, the world will be made right again. And on that day, those who have placed their hope in Jesus will dwell with him forever without sin and the brokenness we experience in this world. It will be better. But that day is not here yet. We live between the two advents, and the question we're left with is how do we live with hope? with confident expectation? I want to provide three reminders to us that we see in the story of Isaiah. One, our hope 
is in Jesus. Right? The people saw a great light. They didn't generate it or create it. They saw it. God provided it. I know this sounds obvious, but we've got to start here that our hope is in Jesus. If we set our hope on getting what we want, then we stand the chance of being deeply disappointed or disillusioned. This is when we look to the sky and curse God. Right? We can pray for specific outcomes, but if we place our trust and our hope in what we want the outcome to be, rather than trusting that Jesus knows exactly what we need, then our hope is on shaky ground. We can live between the two advents with hope, with confident expectation. By trusting in Jesus and having hope in Jesus, the one who's always good, always for us, whose word is sure, whose ways are perfect. We can trust that God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are greater than ours. And when things are not as they should be in our minds, when we wait, we don't anchor our hope to the outcome of our situation. We anchor our hope to Jesus, whose promises are sure and whose character never fails. We hope in Jesus. Two, what we see from Isaiah's story too, we hope in God's promises. Our hope is anchored in the promises God has given us in scripture. The promises given in the Old Testament, including Isaiah, gave people hope and allowed them to wait differently. These people waited 700 years for Jesus to be born. We live on the other side of the cross. I'm so thankful for that. And we look to scripture and we see that all scripture has been fulfilled in Jesus. God's promises are true. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, we read, For all God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ with a resounding yes, and through Christ our amen, which means yes, ascends to God for his glory. We can have hope in God's promises. And on the back of your notes, I've included a link where you can read through the promises of God in every book of the Bible. That may be a good spiritual practice for you this Advent season to increase your hope and your trust. Our hope is in Jesus and we hope in his promises. Isaiah's words reminded people to look at God's faithfulness in the past to give them hope for the future. And in the same way, we can live between the two Advents with confident expectation that God's promises are trustworthy and fulfilled in Jesus. And three... Three, we hope in God's character. Our hope has to be anchored to the character of God. The unwavering goodness, faithfulness, and sovereignty of the one making the promises. We tie our hope to the fact that he is the Prince of Peace. That he is the everlasting Father, the mighty God. We tie our hope to his character. Because what God does, listen, what God does flows out of who God is. Which means that if he's good, then his ways are good. And if his ways are good, then his answers are good, even if they're hard. Unfortunately, we just don't view things like that. I don't view things like that. 
I, I often view God's character through the lens of my situation instead of the other way around, right? So if I'm going through a hard time, God must be harsh. If I'm going through a trial, God must be angry. Or if I'm not getting what I want, then God must be unjust or unkind. But what we need to do is flip that lens around and view our circumstances through the character of God. If he is for us, then he's working for us in this trial. If he's our refuge, our strength, and our salvation, then we're safe. If he's merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in love, then we can rest in the fact that he will be merciful, gracious, and loving to us. The list could go on and on, but the point is that we need to remember who God is and then view our circumstances through the lens of his character. On the back of your notes as well, I've included a link to an article on the characteristics of God that may help you trust him more. But we have to tie our hope to his character. So as we begin this Advent season, let me ask this question. If you're following in your notes, where am I placing my hope? Where am I placing my hope? If you're here today and things are not as they should be, you find yourself waiting in darkness, Jesus can give you hope. However hopeless your situation is, Jesus can bring hope. No matter how far you've strayed or what you've done or how far removed you consider yourself from God, Jesus can bring hope to your situation. Maybe you've been placing your hope in the outcome of your situation rather than the one who already knows the outcome of your situation. Regardless of where you find yourself today, I want to invite you to follow Jesus, to surrender to him. And instead of looking to the world and yourself for answers and finding darkness, look to Jesus and let him shine his light into your situation. Look to him for hope. We need to be reminded our hope's in Jesus. Our hope is in his promises, and our hope is in his character. And that's how we can wait differently as we live between the two advents. While we wait for God to restore all things, while we're waiting for the world to change, we wait with hope. We wait with hope. Let me pray for us before we take communion. God, Fill us with your hope today. Fill us with your confident expectation that you are working all things for good, that you are restoring all things, that you began your rescue mission with the baby born in Bethlehem and you will finish your rescue mission on the second advent of Jesus coming. God, Fill us with hope. It's so easy to look around and become discouraged by what we see in the world or in our own lives, and we need your hope. God, fill us with your hope today. Remind us that our hope is found in you, Jesus. It is found in your promises and your word and in your character. God, thank you for reminding us of that us of that today. We're grateful. It's in Jesus' name. Everybody agreed and said, amen. 
Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information or to stay connected to Cherry Hills Church, please visit our website at cherryhillsfamily.org or follow us on Facebook.